0: Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and a review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Sedations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman.
1: And I'm Francie Russell.
0: With us today is Crystal Fricke, a German philosopher and professor of philosophy at the University of Oslo, and research director at the Center for the Study of Mind and Nature in the Department of Philosophy, Classics, History of Art, and Ideas at the University of Oslo. And she's here to discuss Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiment. Crystal Fricke, welcome. Thank you. So I think Adam Smith is primarily known to us these days as an economist, but apparently he was also a philosopher as well?
2: Well, in the 18th century, the distinctions between the academic disciplines as we have them today did not really exist. So he was an economist, and he was a moral philosopher, and he was a philosopher of law, but he understood this as parts of one overall project, trying to understand people trying to think of where society should go and how it could be encouraged to move in the right direction.
0: Okay, so moral philosophy was one of the things that Adam Smith worked on. What did he take the subject matter of moral philosophy to be? What was morality for Adam Smith?
2: Adam Smith is becoming quite an important figure in moral theory at the moment because he tried to understand the morality of human people as something that comes to them naturally. And he based his moral theory on the idea that people are by nature provided not only with self-love or selfishness, but also with another basic need, namely the need of living in a state of mutual harmony with other people. So underlying is the idea that people are essentially social and as such they care not only for their own happiness but also for the happiness of other people. And uh, we have now a great deal of experimental evidence that people indeed are not exclusively selfish, that they are concerned about what other people think about them and how other people are doing. This said that is mainly a psychological claim and uh, he then tried to explain how something like moral competence, the competence of making proper judgments about what is right and wrong to do on the basis of these natural dispositions. And what makes it somewhat difficult to read his theory is that he addresses the topic from two different angles. On the one hand, he engages in a kind of thought experiment where he tries to reconstruct how people who are more or less like normal human beings but communicate under somewhat ideal conditions, how they would interact in order to join forces and understand what is morally right and wrong. And at the same time, he talks about real people and how they interact, their emotional responses to other people, their feelings, their concerns about social status, their power relations, and uh, gives a rather complex account of how real people interact. So what he talks about in the thought experiment is supposed to be at least one part of what drives people but it is not the full picture that you get when you just describe how people run their everyday lives.
1: So you spoke about how Adam Smith wants to ground morality in human nature, but part of what humans do is learn how to be the natural beings we are with others. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about how he saw us as developing or learning how to be moral.
2: Yes, and Smith has a fairly realistic account of the beginning of the education of a child. Now let's assume that it lives under rather nice conditions. It is brought up by loving parents who teach this child to take care of itself. uh, The child learns what to eat and to drink without getting sick, and it also learns how to interact with the other people in the family without provoking their anger or other kind of punishing responses. Within the family, the child learns to exercise some kind of self-control over its spontaneous emotional responses, self-control in the guidance of its behavior, and it also learns to adapt to the social norms that are also guiding the parent's behavior. So that is a process of socialization within a given society. What the child learns there is on the one hand exercise self-control and on the other hand adapting its behavior to the social norms of the respective society. That is not yet the moral education in the sense that Adam Smith is mainly interested in. It is just a preliminary step to take for getting to the level of moral education. For Smith, moral education is mainly happening in the interaction of the child with peers, with people who are basically on equal footing with the child, and that is to be contrasted with the child-educator relationship where the educators are in the role of providing guidance. They are the leaders of the process. What is characteristic of the interaction of the child with peers is that there is no distribution of roles between child and educator, but rather the question is how to get along together. And um, I think a crucial element in Smith's account of moral education is that, first of all, there are no principles in the picture, no moral principles. There are no moral educators involved like teachers or people from the church. The child with its peers has to figure out these things without this kind of guidance. And a crucial role is played by cases of moral disagreement. As long as they get along fine, uh, they don't really have to address the question of what is right and wrong because they implicitly agree on that. But when they start quarreling over a case of right and wrong, then the question arises how to settle this. The idea that Smith has is that they have a sort of joint interest in figuring out what is right to do for a certain person in response to certain external circumstances. The idea is that in such a conflict, people involved have different social roles. They are, on the one hand, the people whose interests are concerned by the circumstances and who, therefore, passionately respond to these circumstances. And on the other hand, people who are not concerned by the circumstances and find themselves in the position of spectators.
1: So maybe we can get an example on the table How should we think about children interacting with each other as peers such that they come to a new moral understanding of themselves and others?
2: As long as they do not have any conflicts coming up and they play happily together, there isn't really anything they have to do or to learn. The interesting case comes up when they are in conflict and then they have to learn how to solve the conflict. So imagine that there is a group of siblings, more or less of the same age, four or five, and over a weekend they have to take care of a puppy. And the puppy is young and hasn't learned to take care of itself, so they have to take care of it all the time. But they also have plans, meeting friends, going to parties, going for hikes. I don't know what children do over the weekend. So they all jump forward and say, but I want to do such and such, uh, imposing the duty of taking care of the puppy to the others. But then they all do that and they start arguing about who has the right to do what he or she likes and who has to take care of the puppy at home. There is no rule that they can rely on so um, they have to see to it that they find a way of distributing the time to take care of the puppy among themselves in a way that seems fair to all of them. And Smith's idea is that underlying this willingness to find an agreement is the disposition to recognize that the other children have the same right to do as they like, as one claims for oneself. And since not everybody can just do as he or she likes, because then nobody will take care of the puppy, they have to find an agreement where everybody makes a limited sacrifice, but everybody tries to do as much of what he or she originally wanted to do. So they probably they are going to make a plan who is taking care of the puppy at what time, and the plan will then also be informed by their various plans over the weekend and adapt the plan to these plans as much as possible so that they can both do as they like and do their duty in the collective care for the puppy. What they have to learn is to look at a source of conflict from the point of view of all the conflicting parties and uh, not just react to this source of conflict in accordance with their own interest, but realize that other people have their own interest and that they have to negotiate a solution that is fair for all of them. And when they find this solution, they will agree on a fair way of solving the conflict. And Smith's idea is that the moral judgment grows out of this kind of communicative processes but it takes lots of people to discuss and get involved in the communicative process before the resulting judgment can make any kinds of claims to be properly justified.
0: So as I understand it, Adam Smith's moral philosophy has sort of a character in it the impartial spectator or the impartial stance and the idea of this uh, impartial spectator is this is somebody who is um, ideally suited to have the right moral responses to a situation he or she is experiencing so presumably this would be the end point of the process we've been describing whereby a child is initiated into the skill of having the right moral responses to things so what does that end point of this moral education process look like
2: The ideal is indeed to become an impartial spectator. Now, impartiality, that this is an important feature of a moral judgment that is probably easy to understand because someone who is partial can hardly be fair to all parties involved in a conflict. What is probably a little bit misleading is that Adam Smith calls this impartial person a spectator. It is misleading because it sounds as if there was someone watching from the auditorium what was going on on stage without being herself or himself directly involved and sort of judging from the distance. But that is not how Smith understands the role of the spectator. Rather He speaks about the spectator and contrasts the social role of the spectator with that of a person who is emotionally responding to certain circumstances because she finds her interests involved and her interests at stake. The idea is that someone who is afraid that she cannot do as she likes or get what she wants because other people are standing in the way or not respecting her properly tends to respond in an emotional way that makes her blind to all the features of the circumstances that have to be taken into account for making a properly moral judgment about them. So everybody is familiar with the phenomenon that when we are very angry or in some other state of intense emotion we get partially blind to the circumstances around us and we tend to see everything in the light of our rather intense passion. That is not helpful for making a properly informed and fair moral judgment. So for making such a judgment it is better to take the social role of a spectator who is by definition not concerned By the circumstances he is observing or she is observing so his self-love and selfishness is by no means triggered so it is of no consequence uh, for the spectator what is actually going on now why does the spectator have a say Smith relies here extensively on a phenomenon that is in today's psychology called empathy the spectator takes the role of the person concerned and tries to put herself into the position of the person concerned and tries to look at the circumstances from the position of the person concerned but without actually being in the grip of passion he does that with a cool mind taking into account all the relevant features of the circumstances to which the person concerned responds as well as certain characteristic features of this person and then the spectator tries to make a judgment on the basis of whether he or she approves of the actual response of the person to these circumstances and uh, this procedure of the spectator of course provokes the question whether the spectator has any competence for setting the standards of what is morally right underlying is something like the idea of the golden rule, don't do to other people what you don't want to have done to yourself, and so Adam Smith uses that in a sense as saying imagine yourself in the position of the other and imagine how you would have liked what happened to the other person, and if you would have liked it, see how the person responds, whether that is, seems to you to be the right response, and judge on that basis. So what is probably surprising as a basis of a moral judgment is to sort of set oneself the standards for what one considers as right and wrong. But there is implicitly an assumption that the other and the spectator are similar, similar in their vulnerabilities and therefore similar in their interests and their own well-being and also in avoiding certain kinds of circumstances and certain kinds of things being done to them.
1: The way that you're talking, it's, you've emphasized the impartiality of it, but it definitely doesn't seem anything like a removed or inhuman perspective. It seems like part of what the impartial spectator should bring out is something like the best human response to the situation.
2: I think that's an interesting way to put it. It is the best response for a human being possible, but he has room in his theory for there being differences between people that have to be taken into account. So a very simple example could be like this. Someone steps on your foot, and there's someone, a third person, observing what is going on. You feel very hurt. And the person observing thinks, oh, you're overdoing that, someone stepping on your foot, that is not that bad, so don't make such a fuss. And he might overlook that you didn't have any shoes on to protect your feet, or you had just run a marathon and had very sore feet and were particularly sensitive, so there may be circumstances about you that the spectator has to take into account rather than thinking well if someone steps on my feet I don't really mind so where is the problem? But from the interaction between one person with one spectator to a spectator being impartial is a very long way to go. Impartiality for Smith comes in degrees and the degree of impartiality of a moral judgment depends very much on how many people's points of view have been taken into account by judging what is the right way to respond to circumstances of a certain kind. And uh, of course, the more people's points of view have been taken into account, the more impartial the position is, the moral judgment rather. So, yeah,
0: one thing that's interesting about this is I think the way we're used to thinking about these issues is, look, there's a deep conflict between reason and the passions. And if, let's say, I I, um, I have a fit of anger and I do something wrong in my fit of anger, I think the way we're used to thinking about that is, ah, well, you know, his his passions took over and his reason should have kept them in check. But, you know, his reason was subsumed under his passions. And, you know, truly being impartial is to be dispassionate, whereas it seems like in this picture – being impartial is not being unemotional, it's a matter of having the right emotions versus the wrong emotions. So Smith is really sort of challenging this traditional dichotomy between reason and emotions, it seems.
2: Indeed he is. He is on the one hand Mm -hmm. aware that emotions can be very misleading because they are informed uh, by our self-love and we tend to love ourselves more than anybody else in the world. But that does not mean that we can do in our moral lives without the emotions entirely. Because it is the emotions that bring into the world any kind of evaluation, things we care about. If we didn't have any emotions, there was nothing we would care about in the first place. So. Reason and rationality cannot entirely take over from the emotions because if there was reason alone, there would be nothing we would care about. But the challenge is to have reason having an impact on the emotions and the moral person who has learned to be an impartial spectator to some extent relies on something that one would call reflected emotions. So they're emotions, but they have gone through a process of reflection, of control, of adaptation to the circumstances. And they are supposed to be proper with response to the circumstances, and the propriety is very much a matter of reflection.
1: So there's something really attractive about this idea that we can think about morality and give natural human emotions a constructive moral role. But there's also something very attractive about the idea of moral principles, and I think we do make use of this idea in our sort of ordinary moral lives. So does Smith think that there's no role for moral rules and principles, or how does he see this?
2: I think ultimately he accords a rather important role to moral principles. The whole theory of the impartial spectator is meant to provide uh, Strategy for justifying certain moral principles. And the idea of justification is that we start with communicative processes that aim at impartial moral judgments, particular moral judgments, moral judgments about what is right and wrong to do for a particular person under particular circumstances. And these particular judgments in the beginning are not based on principles. They're based on the procedure of communication I've been talking about, so their justification is procedural. But once we have many of these particular moral judgments that are justified in place, we can start via inductive reasoning to agree on moral rules and principles, rules that prescribe how to respond to circumstances of a certain kind. And uh, the idea is, of course, not that whenever there is a conflict, we have to go through this rather complicated and demanding process of communication, but rather rely on rules we have agreed upon. But it is very important to keep in mind that these rules, important as they are, they have no ultimate authority. These rules are always subject to further revision because they depend on these particular judgments and the evidential basis of these rules is under constant revision.
0: Doesn't this moral theory carry with it the the risk of making human morality into sort of an echo chamber where, uh, well, I picked all of my dispositions to respond morally to things from my parents and from my friends and from my community, but you know, what if all these people were misleading me is there room for me to question these habits of response that I've been conditioned into? Or, you know, are we forever condemned to have the moral sentiment that we were taught to have?
2: That was actually one of the questions that kept Smith thinking about his moral theory during most of his life. He first published the theory of moral sentiments in 1759 and published a revised version the sixth edition of the theory of moral sentiments more than 30 years later in 1790, I think there is some evidence for saying that how a person can address moral questions beyond the actual social consensus of the society to which she belongs was absolutely crucial for Smith. And since he has this communicative and consensual approach to moral judgment, it is a very legitimate question to ask, but he thought that he had an answer, because it is important for him to stress that for challenging my actual moral opinions, I do not always depend on there being an external spectator who asks questions about these opinions because it might be the case that I happen to be in agreement with all my actual external spectators and I might share with my external spectators certain prejudices that are morally unjustified. And uh, for addressing that kind of scenario and the moral challenge that it implies, Smith introduced the idea that one can become one's own spectator and moral judge by internalizing the role of the internal spectator. And he explicitly talks about people somehow taking two different roles at the same time. On the one hand, the role of the person concerned, and on the other side, of the spectator who observes the person concerned and makes moral judgments about the performance of this person from the spectatorial point of view. And now you might wonder how one can uh, be one's own moral judge in this way, but the psychological claim that Smith is making there is not unfamiliar to us. It is part of the moral development of a child that at some point in his early teenage internalizes the role of its educator and can, in a perspective of self-reflection, address her or his own performance. And um, for Smith, this is the strategy to take when we feel surrounded by people who are somehow caught in a moral prejudice and are not engaged in a proper process of trying to find out what is morally right anymore, who instead of engaging in this process just help each other to confirm their shared prejudices. One can, for example, imagine someone in a racist society who comes to understand that racism is not in accordance with the due respect to everybody as an equal not find among the racist people anybody with whom to address question of racism, this person then would have to rely on some kind of imaginative communication with an imagined spectator about what is wrong about racism.
1: The way that you just spoke about how we would come to justified moral positions from within the societies we were raised in and how we would come to make sort of truth claims about moral knowledge seem to rely on something like a fundamental principle of equality. And it could sound like we don't develop that naturally. That's just Smith relying on a fundamental principle and who knows where he got that from. So how do you understand the way that Smith uses this principle of equality in his moral philosophy?
2: I think he has to make the assumption that we are naturally disposed to see other people as similar to us, at least as far as the capacity of making moral judgments is concerned, where we understand these judgments as judgments on which we agree. So the model for moral knowledge is descriptive knowledge of the world. We don't make claims of truth for ourselves, we make claims of truth for all people who can have knowledge of the world. And I think that is how Smith understands moral knowledge, even though that is a, a notion uh, that has to be used uh, with care. Uh, he is uh, not claiming that there are some moral facts in the world or something like that. But we address other people as other subjects of moral knowledge and we respect them as such. That's why we care about disagreement on moral matters quite independently of who it is who disagrees with us. It is a strong assumption, but Swiss has to make it, I think. So this claim of equality of people that has both a descriptive and um, evaluative dimension. So the descriptive part of this claim is that we are relevantly similar to each other. And this similarity assumption underlies our attempt at taking another person's point of view, stepping in someone else's shoes and trying to look at circumstances from the point of view of the other person. If we did not make this similarity assumption, the whole enterprise would not make any sense. But then Smith is aware of that and makes room for that in his theory. It is also the case that not everybody is the same. So trying to understand how things look from someone else's point of view is a constant challenge that is both informed by the similarity assumption and the awareness that the other is in some relevant respects different from myself. So he develops his moral theory at this interface between the evaluative claim that everybody is equal and deserves equal respect as a moral subject on the one hand, and the sort of acknowledgement that people are different and that some of these differences between people are morally relevant.
0: Crystal Fricker, thank you for inspiring in me the moral sentiment of enjoying this interview.
2: You're very welcome.
0: If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at Pod. And as always... You can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L U C I A N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.